We would like to welcome you to our weekly broadcast of Harvest Worship Center's Sunday morning celebration service. We hope and pray that you will receive something from the Lord today. And we ask you to stay tuned at the end of the message for more information concerning our church. Again, thank you for joining us today. Um, is everyone feeling good today? You guys ready? Yeah? Excited? Julie, I can see a smile on your face. Because you probably know we're going to go into the book of James. And trials and wilderness and seasons of testing. But I do have something encouraging for you this morning, something God's going to bless you with. Um, and, and realize that it's, it's only for a season. Trials are only for a season. Um, trials aren't just for the believer. Um, God reigns on the just and the unjust. Things are going to happen in the world. It's all about the position of the believer's heart mm-hmm. as to whether or not we grow from it. We have an opportunity to be in communication with the Holy Spirit who is guiding us through it. We have an opportunity to go to Jesus to give us guidance through it. And then God is sovereign over everything, and he either allows or doesn't allow it. For those non-believers, life still happens, but they don't have access to the Holy Spirit or Christ. They are still under a sovereign God, though. Knowing that it's a season gives me some peace. Knowing that whenever there is a time of testing or trials in my life, I do know that there is an end coming. Um, But it's peculiar that James writes in chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all a joy when you fall into various trials. I find that so contradictory to my spirit. But... Isn't that just like our spiritual walk? It does not line up with anything that we would normally do. Um, I, hard for me to see joy when my teenager is going off the rails. Hard for me to see joy when my finances are steady demise. Hard for me to see joy at the loss of a saint or someone very close to me. Hard for me to see joy when my life is unraveling before me. But notice, James doesn't say that the joy is in the trial, but he says, count it a joy. And I don't know about the Greek or the Hebrew or who actually translated it to this, but to me, if I'm having to count on something, that means it's coming in the future. And that's what the Holy Spirit has spoke to me over this. Count it a joy. Count it as something that's going to be cherished. Because you're going to face trials. You're going to go through battles. But knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The testing of your faith produces patience. Trials, in essence, are a proving ground. They're a testing time for us. Mm -hmm. This is an area for us to learn about the strength in God and our weakness This is us to learn more about how it can help other people. This is us to develop trust with God. And at the very end, faith produces patience. Just simply patience. But to me, patience pretty much covers across the board anything. It's when we react to situations, when we react to circumstances, when we react to 
the mountains that we see before us is when we have our shortcomings. Mm -hmm. It's in that patience that we know that we're trusting God because we can't see what's going on at the time. What we see before us might be mountains and mountains and mountains, but we're going to have patience. Hey, I'm not going to panic. God's got it. And that's exactly what the author James was referring to. Um, about three or four months ago, well, from, from March to June, I went through one of the biggest trials a time in the wilderness, as the Bible may refer to it, of my life. Um, it started the week before Thanksgiving. Um, I had been fasting once a month, each month after our January fast. Um, and that week before Thanksgiving, I had initiated a fast. I failed dramatically. Um, wound up stopping short of my mark and that just set the tone for the next four months because the devil saw an opportunity to pounce on me. God saw it as an opportunity for me to fight, to battle, to grow in trust, to learn from him, to grow in him. The trial never touched me financially. The trial never touched me physically. But the trial did come at me mentally. The battleground of the mind is something that is, well, it's a big part of the Bible, and it's where all of our battles begin. Um, I battled depression. I battled loneliness. I felt like the people of the church didn't want me here. I felt like I was unwanted here. I was unwanted by my family. I felt like even my family was talking about me in the other room. Now, this was all a ploy of the devil. This is nothing but Satan putting words into my mind. Um, enticing me to believe things about myself that were not true, mm -hmm. things about circumstances that were not true. And then, bless his heart, Phil would say, I need you to open. I would have a panic attack, my hands would sweat, and I would come up here in a, just a, a shaking mess, standing before you, and I feel like the biggest fraud. But yet I would deliver something. God was all, always give me something to say. I'll go back to my seat and then immediately get beat up by Satan about how awful it was or how you misled and, and how you misdirected. Um, I felt like I was losing my mind. By the third month, I sat right here with my wife and looked her dead in the eyes and just said, man, I just want to know that this is a trial. I don't want to know that I'm going crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm losing it. I just, I just want to know that it's a trial. Um, and shortly after that, God intervened in a great way and, and ended my trial. But I really think that was the turning point because the whole time I tried to remedy my time in the wilderness with everything else in the world rather than God, rather than seeking Jesus, rather than spending time with Him. Oh, I went through all the religious hoops uh, I'm going to get nine devotionals and do each one every hour and, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and all this other stuff. And God said, okay, we're going to go around this mountain one more time. You're still not getting it. I just want you to be you. I'm not asking you to perform for me. I want you to trust me in your darkness. I questioned everything. I, I, 
questioned my marriage at times, which had not been in any way attacked. But again, it was all right here. Literally nothing outside of a one-foot area around me was any different. The people around me still loved me. The people at church still loved me. I was still welcome. I was still loved. I was still cared for. But everything right here was, was in, a, in turmoil. Um, the wilderness can also be beautiful if you allow it. Trials equal wilderness in the Bible, but to kind of identify it, what is the wilderness? What is that trial? What is that time that God sets you apart from everything? You, you feel desolate. You feel alone. Deprived. But on the other side of that coin, for those of you that like to take long walks in the woods, there is opportunity there. There is newness there. There is refreshment there. There's excitement there. And as James says, there is joy there. If we go to into any trial and don't have the, the idea that God is not for us, with us, and loving us through it, we are going to battle. We are going to fight. Because ultimately, that's all he wants to show us is that simply trust whenever you can't see me. Trust me when you can't feel me. Trust me that my word is going to stay true when everything else around you says no. I mean, why would God do this? Why would he not just establish in us, you guys got it, you're, you're good, and just fill me up with the Holy Spirit all the time, and I'm good to go, right? That would just make it a whole lot easier, especially in my mind. But how much easier would it be to minister to somebody out in the world that's going through a battle? Can you minister to somebody if you haven't been through something? That's something I never understood, and I'm not trying to berate any profession, but it's hard for me to comprehend, for example, an addiction counselor who's never battled addiction. That doesn't make sense to me. You don't know what that person's been through, so therefore, how can you counsel them? But is that not exactly the example of ministry that we should hold in the church as, hey, I've been through this, let me tell you. Let me tell you, let me tell you. And the thing I found from counseling men over the last seven years is they just want to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. They want to know that there is hope in the end. They want to know that God's going to come in and be with them, to rescue them, to walk with them, to talk with them. We would love to have miracle on top of miracle of us being pulled from trial after trial. But what good would that do for us as far as cutting our teeth and trusting the love of God, improving the love for God, improving that God's going to step in when we're at our weakest? I asked God several times, show me how this, show me an analogy of this, God, because it's hard for me to understand why you put us through these things. I don't like them. I don't enjoy them. But most of your parents in here or at least been around small children, and at some point in time, one of your children 
has come to me and said they're afraid of the dark. Right? Is it a punishment to them to ask them to lay in their bed with the lights out and reassure them that you're going to be outside the door, that it's okay to be in the dark, that they're safe? To them, it seems like a punishment. To me, it seems like a punishment when I'm in a trial, when I'm in the dark. But God's saying, I'm with you. I'm for you. Nothing's going to happen to you. And if we don't do that for that child, we handicap them to everything else in the world. If we don't push them through those trials of simply getting over being afraid of the dark, what are we really doing for that child? Do we really love them? Do we really care for their well-being in this world, which is full of darkness? God said, that's what I do with you. It's because I love you. It's because I care for you. It's because I want to build you up so that when the storms of this world come, you don't fall apart. You don't run in fear. You're not afraid. The church overall has viewed a time in the wilderness or a season of trials as a curse. We have. We've seen it as a curse. We don't talk about it. We, uh, we hide, may even skip church, um, come to the altar and don't admit it, don't talk to our brothers and sisters about it, um, because initially we feel like, what have I done to make God mad? What have I not done right? And we start going through all the uh, background of the last six months, even a year of what could I have done to make God so mad that I'm in this, that he's left me. He's just left me high and dry. It's been so far as to say, I've heard people tell me, don't pray for patience. Okay, why? Well, then God will put you something to give you patience, and, and that's going to be tough. Man. Well, okay, I, I get that too, but if there's something that God wants me to have that he sees down the road I'm going to need, give it to me. I want it. It's going to be rough a little while, but I trust you, God. So trials are not bad. The wilderness is not a bad place. It is where new ministry starts. Because whatever trial you're going through, that is something that you can share with somebody down the road in every situation, whether it's a loss of a loved one, a mental battle, an addiction, whatever the circumstances are, the newness of the wilderness, the uncultivatedness of the wilderness presents you with an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to grow a ministry. And we like to think of ministries as only being in these rooms back here through the church. But they're not. They're at your work. They're at your grocery store. They're at your school. They're with your friends. They're with somebody you get to introduce to at the ball game. And they're like, hey, man, this is da-da-da-da. Like, well, call me tomorrow. Let's talk about it. And all of a sudden, you're sharing your wilderness with someone who is disoriented in the wilderness right now. And you say, look, this is what I had to do. And it's only for a season. Know that God is with you. And that is comforting people. That is what the church is supposed to do. Building each other up in love. If you have been called into the wilderness, consider it an opportunity, not a curse. 
Consider it a privilege that God says, I believe in you. Consider it an announcement of promotion. A promotion in the kingdom that God said, I believe it's re- it's your, your time is ready to have this ministry in you. To know this about yourself. To know this about me. There are, through our kids' lives, there are certain things we can't give them at an early age. As they mature up, we're like, okay, you're ready for this. Okay, you're ready for this. Okay, now you're ready for this. If God's got you in a time of wilderness right now, take heart. If God's calling you into a season, take heart. If you're coming out of the wilderness, know that God's got something for you. Take heart. It's not bad news, people. There are several types of seasons. The most common, most we see, and the one we always identify with is God leading you into the wilderness. The best example of that is Christ. After his baptism, he was led into the wilderness. The Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. Now, Christ had spent 30 years being a carpenter, he had went to the schools, um, and he had grew up being a Jewish man. But here was his calling to begin his ministry. And the only place that it could start is in the wilderness, is in a season of trials, is in a testing, in a proving ground of God's love because it's a next level. Is something greater than where you're at right now. And even though he was the son of God, he was still human in every way. And God sent him into that wilderness to be tempted and tested and to have that love proved, to have his identity proved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I kept saying, God, I, you know, sh- show me something. Show me about this. And I share this with my, my college kids because they don't, don't understand why sometimes. But we all understand when it comes to Friday night football. And there may be only four or five plays that make a difference in a ball game on that Friday night. And out of those four or five plays, you get 10 games in a season, maybe 11, maybe 12, maybe 13 if you're lucky. But those four or five plays, those nine or 10 games, are impacted by what starts back in the spring, spring training, spring workouts, spring game, bruises, bleeding, heartbreak, summertime, weight room, summer practice, heat, finally get our pads, finally get to go play on Friday night. And we still may not have that great play until the end of the season. You do all this for this one big moment. is that worth it for someone's soul? Is it worth it to tell someone that there is hope? There's nothing more special to me than looking someone dead in the eye, caught in the midst of their addiction and telling them, you're going to be okay. Because what he done for me, he's going to do for you. Now, you're going to have to go through some stuff. This is not a Band-Aid. But what you've got is somebody to walk with you through it. And he will help you through it. And he will talk you through it. And he'll walk you through it. And you're not going to understand some stuff he's doing. 
But if you will trust God, you will get through it. I also found it interesting that the author put that he was out among the wild animals. And Luke is, or Mark is the only one that puts that in his text. And the Holy Spirit told me that you're going to be in some situations where you think that the wildness of this world is going to attack you. It's going to break you. It's going to come after you. It's going to hurt you. But the angels took care of me. You know, a lot of times we like to define that as after his 40 days of fasting, we do know that there were, were ministering angels that came down to take care of him. But there's a part of me that was thinking that, you know what? Maybe there were angels constantly reassuring him, telling him, God's got you. God's got you. Is that not what our friends in Christ do, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do they not minister us when we allow them to be part of our trial? They come to us and say, yes, you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. You're going to make it. And God's sovereignty said that the wild beasts aren't going to mess with you either. This is a proving ground of who you are and your identity. Christ was, te was tested in all three areas, body, mind, and spirit. First with his body. Well, he was tested in many ways, but the three they identified in the Bible all hit on body, mind, and spirit. With his body, he was asked to turn the loaves into bread. Jesus said that man should not live by bread alone. He was tested in his mind with his desires and his wants. With, he was offered all the kingdoms. But isn't that just like Satan to offer us stuff that we already got? He was also tested in his spirit to challenge God, to rebel and say, well, you're the son of God. If you're the son of God, he says, jump off this cliff. The angels will save you. You know they will. Prove it. In every circumstance we see, he challenges Christ's identity. If you're the son of God. Well, if you're the son of God. Well, if you're the son of God. You have to establish your identity. The challenge is, this, is your sonship. The challenge is your identity. The devil wants to make you think that you are less than, not worthy, and God is mad at you. I mean, he even fooled Eve with telling her the same thing that God told her she was already. You are created in God's image. He tells her, well, if you eat from that tree, then you'll be in God's image. Mm -hmm. She was already there. It was all deception. The devil can't touch her, but he can make her think she is less than. The devil can make you think that you're less than. And he tried to make Christ make him believe that he was less than. Mm -hmm. He couldn't touch him. The wild beast couldn't touch him. But the game was right here. Yeah. It was all right up here. In the wilderness, you have a loss of orientation. You don't know which way is out a lot of times. You don't know how to feel. You don't know how to think. The only thing you do have is the Word of God, and you have to trust it. And Scripture after Scripture tells you of His love, of His care, of His sovereignty, of your identity, of His love for you and your sonship or daughtership with Him. In all that, Christ made it through His 40 days, but He even struggled on, He struggled. 
in his humanness, he still struggles. Even from the cross, he says, Has thou forsaken me? Okay, we know, we know that God's not going to forsake us because that would go against his word. So what's happening here? What is Christ doing? This is the human side of him. This is me and my thoughts manifesting in Christ. Me in my times of trouble. Me in my addictions. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And it's not that God's ever forsaken us. But what he will do is pull away from our senses in order for us to simply trust him. Proverbs tells us to lean not on our own understanding. Time and time again, we, un- we know that. But it's so easy if we don't hear God, see God, feel God. Oh God, where are you at? You've forsaken me. It's much like me taking one of my kids at like 10 or 11 years old and I'm going to go in the woods and do a little experiment with you. Blindfolding them and having them sit there in the woods. And I'm going to say, we're going to sit here overnight. And I'm going to tell you I'm going to be here right here with you the whole time. But you're not going to be able to hear me or feel me or see me because you're blindfolded. And you just got to trust that I'm going to be here. Okay? And they're like, well, all right. Whatever you say. And uh, I can see some of my kids in panic mode after about 20 minutes going, Look, I don't, this ain't, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> Why have you forsaken me? Where'd you go? And I'm really sitting right beside them. But the loving father's going to say, I'm right here. I've not left you. But we panic. We hit panic mode. Where, where are you? I can't feel you. I can't see you. I'm right here. I'm with you. Other trials are by choice. Fasting that we do in January is a trial by choice. It is us putting ourselves in a trial by limiting our body, our minds to certain things that distract us in order to draw closer to God. Fasting is a manner of a self-imposed trial. Um, A trial that is good. Um, other trials are, are made by bad choices. Um, I spent a, a little time out in a uh, facility in Texas of higher learning. It was a, it was a trial that uh, I self-imposed because I was doing my own thing. And God's telling me the whole time, look, this is coming to an end. You're running from me. You're, you're running from me. I, I'm putting this to an end. You can stop on your own, and I'll help you. But I, I wouldn't listen. I, I was, but honestly, here I stand today, able to tell you about it. Yes, thank you. Praise God for that. The, uh, the most interesting self-imposed trial that I like to read about in the Bible um, is uh, Peter walking on water. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it for time. Um, so the disciples are in a boat. Storm comes in. We all know the story. Christ comes out walking on the water. Peter says, if that's you, God, Lord, bid me to come to you because I want to walk on water too. 
Now, if you can show me any spiritual significance in this whatsoever, I'm open to it. But I don't see anything that could benefit the kingdom by Peter being able to go back and tell all of his homies, hey, did you guys see me walk in the water? And you know how boastful he was. He would have done that. Now, this was all set up, and Jesus says, all right, if you want to come on, come on out here. And he does, and he walks on water. But that's not where the story ends, does it? He starts to sink, and he starts to drown. Now, whether it was by his faith, losing sight of Jesus, whatever, I don't know. I really think this whole thing was set up just to knock Peter down a notch. And to prove that he can trust Christ to save him, even when he makes his own mistakes, even when he makes bad choices, even when we put ourselves in the wilderness. God's got a plan. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. Peter had a different perspective after that. A little change of heart after that. But again, the lesson is trust. And then there are trials that God allows. Luke 22, 31 through 32, it says, Simon, Simon, it's referring to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and when you have turned back, you will strengthen your brothers. Now, in the commentary, in, the, in some of the other... Uh, Some of the other versions, um, you can see that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat is a plural. And what he's referring to is all the disciples. He wants to shake them and shake their faith and break them down because he knows that a ministry is about to start here. He knows the church is about to kick off. He's going to knock these guys down a notch. Mm -hmm. But Jesus says, Peter, you're my boy. I'm putting you in the game. Um, I love sports analogies, um, and I can't stay away from them, but I just couldn't help but think about a wrestling match and the duels. you got two coaches with a team full of kids, and uh, you see this one guy coming out, and the coach picks who he thinks best can, can beat this guy, and they go at it. But it's different with God. Mm-hmm. God implements Christ into the program. He says, I prayed for you. Everything's going to be all right. But you are going to get sifted like wheat. You are going to get shaken. Mm-hmm. And then the last line says, when you've turned back, you will strengthen your brothers. Is that not ministry of the church in a nutshell? Yes. When you guys go through a trial, it is not for loss. God doesn't waste a tear. God uses everything for the glory of his kingdom. He moves us all forward with that same thought in mind. I'll strengthen them, and then they'll strengthen others, and then they'll strengthen others, and then they'll strengthen others. Minister from a position that you know. Minister from a position that you've been in. God is sovereign, and Jesus has faith in Peter, and it is a perfect example of ministry. In Peter's denial, and that is where Satan came in. Mm -hmm. Peter stands there and watches his best friend, his love of his life, his that person to him. He was just that person. Christ was that person to Peter. 
get beat. And Peter, being the robust man he was, didn't do a thing. This is a man with a big ego. And, and I know as a person who's been down that road, that had to be a challenge for him to sit back and just watch and not do anything. To sit there and watch one of your dear friends get beaten. Wrongfully get beaten. And not do anything. And in that, it would have been enough to be sifted, to be shaken, to be broke down. But Peter takes it a step further. And my mom's not here this morning because she hates these analogies, but I really couldn't avoid this one. Uh, sometimes in the trial, and I only learned this because I watched Law and Order, um, there's a Miranda rights that says, you have the right to remain silent, okay? Anything you say can and will be used against you, all right? Now, it was enough that he had a battle watching the very man that he said, brother, I'll die with you. Whatever it takes, I'll go with you. Watch his very words get beaten and broken right in front of him. But as he steps away and tries to warm himself by his fire, his speech betrays him, and the Galilean comes out, and he's noticed. And so not only is he concerned about Jesus getting beat up, but now he's concerned for his own life because all the disciples are under, under watch at that time. Their life might have been in danger. Peter felt like his life was in danger, and so much that he denied Christ three times. The trial for Peter was being heartbroken. He wasn't touched physically. He wasn't touched financially. He was heartbroken. But he goes on to state this in Luke, that the Lord has risen and has indeed appeared to Simon, who is Peter. First person Jesus meets with, heartbroken Peter, busted up. Now we have cell phones, but prior to that time, and more of you guys might can relate to this, if you got into a fight with your girlfriend or boyfriend and they hung up on you or whatever and, and you'd said some ugly stuff and, and back in the day call muting was taking the phone off the hook, you couldn't get through and you definitely couldn't go to their house. And you just had to sit there and, and debate and worry over what they were thinking or what was going on in their mind. And, and, and you wanted to fix it right then because I'm a fixer. I'm not a steward. I'm a fixer. I want to do it right then. And so if my wife and I have any kind of argument and she takes two days to even get to bring it up again and I'm just fruit looped out because I'm ready to solve it and be done and go back to normal life, I would be like Peter, heartbroken stressing, worrying, debating, what is going on, what is going on, what is going on. Why can we not get this out and open? But Peter knew Jesus was crucified. He would never get a chance to say it again unless the scripture proved to be true. So can you imagine what was going on between his ears? The battle. Oh, if I get to see him again. 
Oh, if I get to see him again. Oh, if I get to see him again. Peter would later go on to write in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. This brings you great joy, although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials. But such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold, gold that is tested by fire, even though it is passing away and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I cannot help but he thought about that day. Here's my trial. And oh, what a joy it was just to see Christ again and to make things right and to know that I won't be that person anymore. All in all, things are going to be okay. In closing, I got one more guy I want to look at. Um, and that is John the Baptist. John the Baptist stayed in the wilderness. He chose to be there. He loved it there. He was the man in the wilderness that baptized Jesus before he went in the wilderness. Because I don't think that Christ would have wanted the ceremonial religious events of the Pharisees. He wanted John the Baptist. And there are some things that I do every time, every time I go into a trial, every time I feel God pulling away from my immediate senses, I go back to my old religion. What do I need to do, God? What do I need to do? And I'll start finding some devotionals. Where, where's God? How, not, where, how can I hear God? And I start looking for God, looking for God, looking for God. Panic, panic, panic. God's left me. And that's that religion. John the Baptist had nothing to do with that. John the Baptist stayed in the wilderness. And he had two messages. Number one, always be looking for Christ. Always be looking for Jesus in the wilderness. Always be looking for Jesus in your trials. And the other, while you're there, talk about Jesus. Be the forerunner for Jesus. Lay the groundwork for Jesus to show up. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, For our light afflictions, which are for but, for but a moment, worketh for us far more exceeding the eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Guys, our trials are eternal. The changing of our character is eternal. Jesus is eternal. And the altar call this morning is simply this. If you're there, if you're in a season, if you're in the wilderness, if you're in a trial, come talk to Jesus about it. He's got open ears. He wants to see you this morning. He wants to talk to you this morning. He wants to walk with you and talk with you. He's in the wilderness with you. Our God pulls away from our senses. But he gives us the Holy Spirit and gives us Jesus. Be the forerunner for Jesus. Always be looking for Jesus. Find your spot in the wilderness to grow and realize that those tears, God doesn't waste any of them. What you've cried about, what you worried about, what you worried about your kids over, 
God's going to use that to his glory one day if you will let him. The difference in us and in the world for believers, all that stuff we go through has eternal ramifications for us. We're able to minister to somebody else. We're able to talk to somebody else. We're able to walk somebody else through a tough time in their life. And is that not what the church is supposed to do? Walk it and talk it. This morning, if you're here and you need to meet with Jesus, come. We would like to thank you for joining us for our weekly podcast. We pray that you receive something from the Lord today. Please share your prayer requests and testimonies with us by emailing us at tryonhwc at gmail.com. If you would like more information concerning Harvest Worship Center, you can visit our website at tryonhwc.com. We would love for you to visit us in person sometime. Our services are held at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Children's worship is during our 11 a.m. service. If you would like to give to the ministries of Harvest Worship Center, you can also do this by clicking the giving tab online. Once again, we would like to thank you for joining us today, and we pray you have a blessed week.